Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hey, welcome everyone. Welcome to Fanalytics University, class number eight. This one we are calling something like league organization and fan response. And so this is this is kind of get look we we've been on a long winding path talking about the nature of fandom through some classic and some new age sports analytics at the end of the day though the sports business is an entertainment product and a lot of what dictates how the product ends up being put out there for fans is the way leagues end up being organized so this is a topic that i i say for last this is um I, I love this topic. Um, I, and it, as I say, I love this topic. I should introduce the class student, Mr. Doug Battle. How are you today, Doug? Hello. I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> doing well. Um, so this is a topic that I find interesting, but this is... So it's material. It's It's decisions that really affect how fans can enjoy the games, but it's decisions that are tend to be made by lawyers and economists and business people that are fairly divorced from, you know, so they're essentially, these are the backroom decisions that affect the on-field product that fans know and love. So as a, as a starting point for that, in the, the slide, the, the first slide for today, if you're listening, you want to check the, pull up the website, is some information on combat sports pay-per-views okay so when i talk about combat sports i am talking about and this may just be my own definition of the category i am thinking about boxing mixed martial arts ufc for the most part and professional wrestling okay any objections to that uh to that uh category doug no but i can tell you from from that category uh being the category we discussed today that You've been looking forward to this one. I know this is a a, a passion, passionate subject for you. Absolutely, and and, and you know wh- where this co- defining the combat sports industry as having those three those three entities is usually going to engender a an objection, particularly when professional wrestling is included. Right, professional wrestling is explicitly sports entertainment, but it is still sports entertainment that has its foundations in hand-to-hand combat. 
So on the slide, what we've got listed is, and all I've done is I, I found a I found a website that had the top 100 pay-per-views. Okay, so um, okay. want to relate this to market demand. The top 100 pay-per-views across those three categories of sport. Um, number one on that list is Mayweather Pacquiao with the pay-per-view buy rate of 4.6 million. Okay, so okay. I, I think at the time this grossed 400 to 500 million dollars. It was about five years ago. At the I, I think about 2016, so four or five years ago. All all I can say is as a as a casual combat sports fan, this was the event that could have gotten me into it for real. It could have made me a diehard. Me and a lot of other people, and I do remember that Mayweather Pacquiao being so hyped up. And being very anticlimactic, it was absolutely well. All Mayweather fights are anticlimactic, <laughs> and in some ways, it's the worst thing that can happen, right? He is the boxer of the current age, but he is a defensive boxer, and so it's almost like the more right. eyes upon him, the more disappointed fans there are going to be. Um, <laughs> right. Number two on the list was Mayweather versus Conor McGregor. Okay, any thoughts on that one? I mean, I also remember that one being fairly hyped up um, oh. because McGregor was not a boxer classically. And so he was saying he was going to pretty much switch sports and, and be just as good. Um, and obviously a big brand, two big brands there. So that one nearly had the hype that the Mayweather Pacquiao fight had. And I think it had a pretty similar uh, amount of excitement that it actually generated. Yeah, um, that, that that's fair. A little, a little, and again, a defensive, the most masterful defensive boxer of the ages yep. is not going to create the same excitement as a uh, knockout artist. Um, other numbers on this list, and like I said, I'm just going to sort of hit some highlights. Number three, McGregor versus. Uh, Oh my God! I you know I, I don't want to try and say this one on tape. But, Nurmagomedov. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know. And so this was the you know the biggest UFC match of all time at 2.5 million pay per views. Um, then I'm going to skip a few. We had Tyson at Holyfield with uh, just short of two million pay per views. Uh, Brock Lesnar versus I think it's Frank Frank Muir, uh, 1.6 million. That was number nine. Number 21 on this list. Okay, and so I said, you know, I've got this very kind of flexible view of the combat sports sector. Someone named KSI took on someone named Logan Paul. Now, Doug, you're 24, 25 years old. You're going to have to explain what that is to the folks. First off, I, I want to say that I am, uh, I, I am personally not a fan of either of these individuals. I do know a lot of people would love to see Logan Paul get knocked out because he's been the center of some controversy. These are two, I believe YouTubers, uh, internet celebrities, if you will, that make a living by posting videos on the internet. So I guess influencers would be, okay. <laughs> be another word for that. Um, yeah. One of them is, is British. Uh, that would be KSI and, and Logan Paul, I believe is American. And has has like I said stirred controversy essentially for a living over the last couple of years. Okay, and I intentionally didn't listen to a lot of that because I don't I don't want to know who these guys are. I think I, I think this is just this is just sort of one of these more appalling elements of the modern world. Number twenty seven on this list was uh, The Rock versus uh, Cena, uh, WrestleMania twenty eight, and 
Number 28 on this list, and this is this is kind of a special thing in the history of WrestleMania, was a Trump versus Vince McMahon match, and this created 1.2 million pay-per-views. Okay, so the combat sports industry. Now, when I think about this and what I think is interesting, and look, you, you, you called it out on some of this. Um, Mayweather-Pacquiao, there's a ton of hype for that. That was a fight that fans have been waiting for for years. Um, both very legitimate comp- contenders. The number two on that list is suddenly we've got a guy switching sports in Conor McGregor. Um, mm-hmm. Going down, we, we get into pure sort of sideshow circus stuff with KSI versus Logan Paul. Um, all the way to complete entertainment package in terms of Trump versus McMahon. So we've got the different organizations represented here from, well, and, and this is kind of a key point. We've got the boxing industry represented. We've got the UFC organization represented. And we've got the WWE represented. Okay. We also have the Oval Office represented. Well, not at that time, but in, in <laughs> hindsight, yeah. Um and so what's kind of interesting, if you follow this industry and you think about the nature of these pay-per-views, and, and right off the bat, we can say, well, WrestleMania, it may not be a sport, definitely an athletic competition, but they get to pick, right? So they've got yeah. total control over the product. They could have, you could imagine a scenario where Donald Trump could become the WWE championship, po- you know, let, let's say he loses in uh, November this year. Um, he could become a WWE championship for the next five years, right? The champion. Right. So it's they have total control over the product, all the way to well, the UFC, a lesser level of control, right? One of the problems that a, an organization like the UFC is always going to have is they're always looking for their next star. Um, I, I remember a few years ago when Ronda Rousey was. Yep. arguably the biggest star in the WWE, their their best headliner. Now, what happens when she loses to Holly Holmes and then follows up and loses another match? Then suddenly that brand equity is gone, right? No one's interested right. in paying to see... Um, no, no one's interested to see her fight anymore, Ronda fight anymore. Um, and then we have the, the other one at the very top of the list where we've got sort of this very pure level of competition, right? There's nothing, you know, people are not engaging in, in, in the UFC. They, they've got a hope that sort of the, cr- the cream rises to the top and the fights play out in a way that there's market interest in whoever the current champion and challenges are. In the case of boxing, it's purely the Wild West, you know, one of the problems that boxing will always have is that there is no unifying league. You've got a bunch of different organizations and different promoters who have every incentive to have their guy be at the top, right? So they have no incentive of putting their undefeated fighter against an undefeated fighter who essentially fights for a different promoter because if they lose that, they lose such a valuable marketing asset. So in the case of Mayweather and Pacquiao, this is something the fans have been waiting for for years and years. And, you know, after it played out, frankly, you know, for a variety of reasons, especially the age of these guys, the story was essentially done. But the the, the big story in terms of why I love combat sports for this discussion of leagues is we just think about these different entities of the WWE, total control. They get to decide who the stars are. They get to decide who the winners are. 
the UFC, a lot of control. They get to decide who the matchups are, right? They get to decide who to put at the top of the card. Um, but they do have the problem that if the big name draws lose, they lose a lot of marketing power. And the last one, boxing, kind of the wild, wild west of everyone's trying to build these brand assets. And the biggest problem is actually getting people together on a card to give the fans actually what they want. Okay, so the core of what we're getting at in today's class is the issue of competition. Okay, and frequently academics, economists will refer to this as competitive balance. Fans might think of this as the idea of parity. Okay, so Doug, I'll, you know, given that you're playing the role of the fan and all this, what does parity mean to you? Uh, I guess like how even it is across a league. Yeah, good, good. And so is that important? Is having relative evenness, balance across the league important? I think so. Um, you know, some leagues don't have it and do extremely well. You think about college football, there's like five to 10 teams that are always in contention and the rest of maybe four, like, maybe four teams. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, and the rest are, are just kind of afterthoughts and college football seems to do pretty well. Um, but look at the NBA when the Warriors and Cavs were in the finals every single year. And people were tired of it. They wanted to see more parity. And I think this year you've seen a more even league with a lot more teams in contention. It's made for more interesting storylines, um, more uncertainty as to who will win the championship, who will be in the finals, semifinals. And so I think that overall, um, as a sports fan, parity is something certainly something that, that I like to see. Okay, I really like that answer because you hit on a couple of kind of key points in this. And so we'll, let's, let's come back to the issue of pro versus college sports in a second. But I think you all, your, your comments also highlight that parity is something that's a little bit, it's a little bit complicated, right? College football without much parity seems to do pretty well. But the yeah. idea of not having, not, uh, of many teams not having a chance also seems like a problem, right? So parity is something mm-hmm. that, Maybe we want some of it, but how much of it do we really want is kind of an open question. And I'll be honest with you, I think that's an open question for all leagues for, for all time. It's something that no one's ever been able to pin down. Now, the couple of economic it's like conjectures about sports are, are relevant to this discussion. So the first one is, and I, I forget who said this, but they, they term this as the peculiar economics of sports. Uh, the other one is the uncertainty of outcome hypothesis. So let's start with the uncertainty of outcome hypothesis. The, it, it's as simple as it sounds. And so for sports fans to enjoy games, there's got to be this level of, well, un- uncertainty. We, we don't want to mm. go into it knowing who's going to win. So it, Globetrotters, the Harlem Globetrotters is maybe a brand. Are you familiar with them, Doug? Oh, yeah. I've seen them quite a few times. Okay. Have you ever seen them lose? No. I will say the Washington Generals gave them a good run for their their money um, for for a good bit of the game. Most times I've seen them. You know, now that I think of it, it's been almost the same entire experience every time. Yeah. 
Oh, okay. And so Globetrotters, actually, I, I've seen them in the last couple of years. They put on a surprisingly good product, uh, even for the adult audience. I mean, I think it's a show geared a lot towards kids, but they, they actually do a nice job, but it's it's definitely in the realm of entertainment. There's no uncertainty. And so there's a lack of, there's a lack of the drama the the tension that we get with with regular sports the other the other theory i mentioned the peculiar economics of sports the this is a this is one that occurs more on let's say the difference between being a fan of one team versus being a fan of a league so you are very clearly a fan of the georgia bulldogs right do you want the georgia bulldogs to win the next 10 sec championships that would be fantastic. Okay. I would really enjoy that. Okay, and, and so that's the thing. Every team has the incentive to want to win over and over again to completely dominate. Is that good for a sport to have the same team win the championship just about every year? No, not at all. Okay. <clears throat> and so competitive balance, I think it's high point in terms of the world of sports and the media occurred around about the year 2000, 2001. And so let me go back in time for you and read off the World Series participants and champions for the years from 1996 to 2001, okay? Okay. In 96, the Yankees defeated the Atlanta Braves in the World Series. In 97, the Marlins beat the Cleveland Indians. In 98, the Yankees beat San Diego. Okay. In 99, the Yankees beat Atlanta. Are you starting to see a pattern in all this? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I, I certainly do. In the year 2000, the Yankees defeated the Mets. And in 2001, the Yankees lost the World Series to the Arizona Diamondbacks. So that is one, two, three, four, five, six years that the Yankees were in the uh, World Series five out of the six years and won four championships in six years. Is that healthy? Um, it's healthy for Yankees fans. Okay. Uh, for everyone else in baseball, I'm going to say no. <laughs> it gets pretty old. Yeah. And that's exactly what the look was. And, and it's especially bad, I think. Well, let me ask you this. Why is it especially bad when the Yankees have that level of dominance? Um, because they have all the money, so it becomes more of a. It's at least the perception is that it's a pay-to-win league, and that the team that has the most money or the biggest market um, can just buy their way to championships. I think that's exactly it. So New York has a market size of eighteen to twenty million folks. It's the biggest media market, and so they've also the the Yankees almost always have the highest payroll in Major League Baseball. And so you set up a situation where can the team that has the most resources essentially buy their way to victory? And that's just going to that's going to be devastating to, in particular, small market, small market teams. So the, mm-hmm. the, the response to this was something called the Blue Ribbon Panel, Major League's Blue Ribbon Panel. And they went out and they got a bunch of high profile, I think, former senators and chairman of the Fed to really dig into this problem and come up with potential solutions, all right? So to put mechanisms in place, and and that is a word that I will always think about when I think about sports and designing leagues, designing mechanisms so that there is a level of competition, there is enough balance that the games remain healthy, 
Okay. And so this brings us to the topic of CBAs. CBAs, collective bargaining agreements, the agreements between owners and players' unions are very important, even though they're something that fans probably don't want to think about, because they dictate how teams compete with each other, how teams acquire talent. And you know, that, at the end of the day, that's the key, right? How teams are able to acquire talent, which is going to dictate the level of competition on the field. Okay, so for the CBAs, uh, and we're, we're going to have sort of a bare bones discussion about this. I tend to think that the big issues in terms of what the fans see on the field are things like amateur drafts, free agency, salary caps, and revenue sharing. Okay. Okay. And, and so, look, I, we, I, I love the NFL draft. You love the NFL draft? It's uh, it's one of, as a fanalist, I will say <laughs> it's one of my favorite nights in all of sports. I enjoy the NBA draft almost as much. Um, but, yes, NFL draft is, is a lot of fun. It's maybe not the fast-moving sports experience that casual sports fans will enjoy, but those that love diving deep into what makes a great team Love the NFL draft. They're definitely different animals, the NBA and the NFL draft. Uh, the NBA draft has always been a high point in terms of fashion, I think, relative to the NFL. But they're they're both, I agree, they're a lot of fun. Now, from a fan's perspective, I think maybe that one of the key things about the NFL draft is like this emotion of hope, right? This feeling of hope. Every team comes away feeling like they just got three or four starters and a couple of pro bowlers out of just about every draft. Now, so it's a nice event. It's a way to start building up the next generation of stars. So there's a nice marketing element to this as well. How does the NFL draft, how does that affect the level of competition in a league? Or, you know, and it doesn't have to be the NFL. How do the NBA or the NFL draft, how do these amateur drafts affect the level of competition. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about parity, the draft and the draft rules seem to be put in place to create as much parity as possible um, because you've got the worst teams in the league and all of a sudden they have the best assets in the draft. So they have the best assets for the future and over time they're able to build a team that's competitive with the best teams in the league. And on the flip side, those teams that are very talented um, have lesser assets every year. So it's really, it's the opposite of college football. In college football, if you win a championship, you're more likely to have the number one recruiting class, which makes you more likely to win the next championship. In the NFL, uh, you win a Super Bowl, you're last in the pecking order as far as picking your next batch of players. Um, and so it's it, it keeps it exciting for fans of the lesser teams. I know as a New York Giants fan, we're two weeks into the NFL season, and Saquon Barkley towards ACL this year, or this last week. There's some doubts already about Daniel Jones still having turnover problems, and I know there's Giants fans already thinking, what if we just tank this year and get Trevor Lawrence, and he could be our guy for the next 15 years. Maybe that'd be worth it, and so it gives you hope. It gives you hope that you can regain um, your place as, as a contender. Okay, absolutely. And I think the the key to this, and you, you start to go down a path of where this leads, right? And and so the you know the key to these drafts is that the worst team picks first, so the there's it's a way of balancing talent over time. 
the highest performing teams get the wor- get the the least influx of new talent. Um, now you're you're sort of going to probably Fanalytics 102 in terms of how that creates incentives for behaviors like tanking going forward. But it's absolutely you know it's a it's a nice insight in terms of you design a league to maintain parity by giving more talent to the teams performing the worst. But this can also create kind of some strange incentives that might not be ideal. Okay, the next one on my list was free agency. Now, free agency almost seems to be well. What we were talking about the Yankees, right? And so the concern about the Yankees is largely not that the Yankees are going to be the best, we're the best organization in baseball in terms of identifying undervalued talent, right? That was always the Oakland A's. But the Yankees were able to go out there and buy the best free agents. Okay, so what's the relationship between free agency and competitive balance? Um, Typically, especially in recent years, you look at the NBA, for example, free agency has not been good for competitive balance. It gives players the choice. Players want to play on good teams. And the players that really want to play on good teams are, I guess, the players with the most pool or uh, most power in those situations are the better players in the league. So it gives them the opportunity to team up uh, when all the good players are on one team. That's less good players for the rest of the league, and it makes it less competitive. We saw that. I mean, the greatest example of that is Kevin Durant going to the Golden State Warriors, uh, which was already a dynasty at the time. Um, But even last offseason, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving teaming up in Brooklyn um, we see that every offseason so as far as parity is concerned I think the big market teams benefit in free agency and, and parity is harmed by it the big markets can pull the players they have more to offer them as far as their brands um, they often have more to offer as far as um, I mean there, there's certain salary limitations that well the hold, teams on, are hold on let's get, let's get to that okay <laughs> okay um, but yeah, yeah, you're dead on. So I think historically, in free agency in sports goes back to really the late '60s with uh, I think the gentleman's name was Kurt Flood suing for mm-hmm. essentially free agent rights. And so free agency has always been a dilemma for a competitive balance, right? The the natural inclination is since in American sports, right? American sports are different than international sports in some ways. We don't have relegation. Uh, in general, teams don't share markets. So there's always been these resource differences between let's say new york and milwaukee and so the fear has always been that free agents would drift to those larger markets who could pay more so we've got you know free agency is almost a fact of life something the owners have to give the players for legal reasons and really kind of basic basic fairness right Mm -hmm. um now now that we've got free agency occurring then We've got to figure out a way to moderate its effects, and that's where you get into these topics of things like salary caps and revenue sharing. Okay, and so you you mentioned salary. I think you mentioned salary caps, right? And so, what's the idea of a salary cap? Um, and and it can be there can be different forms of it, right? You can have a roster level salary cap. You can also have things like max salaries for individual mm-hmm. players. Yeah, um, I think the general idea is to level the playing field financially for these teams so that the team with more money can't have better players but they're they're held to the same constraints as the next team so the cleveland cavaliers 
and the Memphis Grizzlies have the same salary cap as the Los Angeles Lakers and the New York Knicks. Absolutely fair. And so it is a way of putting putting a rule in place that should make for parity. And it's not something that, you know, it's not a major topic for today. But, you know, so often when we're talking about parity, we are talking about the infamous struggle between the big markets and the small markets. And you see these across every league right the um Mm -hmm. in major league baseball you're trying to protect the pirates and the royals from the yankees and the dodgers in the nba you're trying to protect the uh you're trying to protect memphis and charlotte from uh, the lakers and the knicks though they don't need a lot of protection from the knicks for whatever reason um so this is something that is built into place to almost explicitly maintain parity Now, the last item on this list is revenue sharing. Okay, so revenue sharing matters. And I'll throw this back to you, Doug. So why do you think revenue sharing matters? When you say revenue sharing, um, can you define that? Oh, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for raising that. So revenue sharing is how much of the, the leagues are strange entities in some ways, right? You've got, say, about 30 teams in a league. What is the relationship in terms of the business between those teams, right? They're fierce competitors on the field. Mm-hmm. How much of the revenue do they share, though, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so you can imagine a scenario where, hey, everyone just gets their own, and we even apportion the national TV contract based on the number of viewers in each market, okay? Mm-hmm. If we do that, what does the revenue differences look like between New York and Milwaukee? Significant. They're extraordinary, yeah. right? And, right. And so then you can almost you can have situations where there's a different levels of revenue sharing. Where hey, you know maybe you just keep your local revenues, but and then we'll divide the TV revenues equally. Okay, that that sounds more fair, right? But but at the difference between the, at the local levels, some of these differences can be extraordinary as well. Anyone can go out and look up, let's say, the average ticket prices across different across different leagues, and you can see situations where maybe the average ticket price in a market like New York might be five times what it is in some of the smallest markets in the league. So there can be enormous in the local TV as well. There can still be enormous differences. Um, the NFL is really notable for having. I mean, the, the NFL is notable for having the most revenue sharing because they do split the entire TV deal. Which means that the Green Bay Packers playing in a market with, you know, what, 200,000 people have essentially the same revenue coming in as the New York football giants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think when it comes to, you know, to, to answer your original question, when it comes to revenue sharing, um, I think this incentivizes teams to work together and uh, to ultimately they're growing the overall pie rather than fighting for a bigger piece of, of the same small pie. Um, and so uh, from an incentive standpoint, I think revenue sharing is a smart move for the league if their goal is, is to create a league that's, that's growing um, while also um, ensuring some, some element of parity. Okay, this last word that I want to key on, the, the word that you used was incentives. Mm-hmm. That is a word that is of enormous importance when designing these CBAs, like we 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 talked real, and we did this very briefly today about drafts, free agency, salary caps, revenue sharing. These things all work together, and they create relatively complicated incentives. You're dead on. 
the ideal CBA agreement should be designed so everyone's incentives are aligned. So that the owners have a league that is growing, the players are doing well, and the fans are happy. But very often, um, and in the case of a- amateur drafts, you, you, you sort of alluded to one of the problems of potential incentives. If I'm not going to make the playoffs, if I'm not going to win a championship, then maybe I should try and lose every game so I can draft Joel Embiid or I can draft Trevor Lawrence. Okay. Yeah. In the case of revenue sharing, one of the issues with the early model of Major League Baseball is that revenue sharing was, and this was following the Blue Ribbon Commission, is that revenue sharing was based on local revenues. So if I'm the Kansas City Royals or the Pittsburgh Pirates, I've got now, I've got like two ways to generate revenues, right? I can put a winning team on the field and bring a bunch of people through the turnstiles. Or I've got another revenue sharing source, which is that if I've got less people coming through the, tur- the turnstiles, essentially the Red Sox and the Yankees have to write me a bigger check. Okay, And so that created a weird set of incentives where, hey, maybe the less I invest in my payroll, I'm actually going to do better in terms of revenue sharing. And so it's a, it's a great point to think through the incentives because one of the things that Major League Baseball then, I believe, had to do was not just have – well, Major League Baseball doesn't have the salary cap. They've got a luxury tax, but they also had to create a salary floor. So teams have to pay at least, you know, at least $30 million in payroll. Okay, so competitive balance is kind of the core of what we're talking about, parity. This brings us really, this kind of puts in focus the fact that when teams go out there and play, like you love the New York Giants, you love the Georgia Bulldogs, I love the Fighting Illini. They're not just creating a show for, they're just not, they're, they're not out there alone creating a show. They have an opponent. The opponent matters right i mean all all of today's discussion has really been about how the opponent matters in terms of how much evenness of competition there's going to be from a fan side i I think the opponents don't get enough attention in some ways you know we, we we think about our home team our college team we think about them a lot but the rivalries really matter as well and and look this is this kind of goes back to the whole nature of what is sports entertainment about, kind of the the beauty of the narratives or the stories. And so this is this is where we realize that just as Batman needs the Joker, our teams need their need their key opponents, right? Yeah, it, it's about sports fandom is about love, but you know what? Hate really matters in this too. So Doug, as a as a you know New York Giants or Georgia Bulldog fan, who do you hate? Yeah, I mean, for the Giants, you know, number one, it's the Cowboys. Uh, Philadelphia Eagles are right there. For Georgia, for me personally, it's Auburn because I grew up in Alabama and Georgia played Auburn, and I was the only – I was outnumbered. Um, but for most Georgia fans, it'd be Florida, be number one. And, like, Georgia Tech would like for us to say Georgia Tech, but, <laughs> like, nah, not. It's, okay. it's, it's Florida, then Auburn. And then Tennessee and, you know, talk about the the greatness of sports fandom. So it's in terms of like the emotional connection to these teams. So you got you got love in terms of the Georgia Bulldogs. You've got hate in terms of the let's say the Florida Gators. But you also felt the need to throw in a little bit of pettiness here directed to Georgia Tech. (laughs) 
right? I mean, that's what makes this stuff so so great, right? <laughs> okay, so what I've pulled here for the for the last slide for today is, and there's nothing special about this article. I just I found on the Bleachers Report someone had a top 100 sports rivalries. So let me give you, uh, and again, this is this is just purely personal opinion from the from the author. So let me give you some of the some of his list of the top 100 rivalries, and let's talk a little okay. bit about why they matter and what they mean. Okay. So number okay. one on the list uh, was Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali. Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali. A little bit before your time. Before my time, yes. Um, obviously, with one of those names being more familiar to me than the other. Um, or okay, well, well age, which one Which one was more familiar? Muhammad Ali, right? Muhammad, yeah, Muhammad Ali. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've, I've seen uh, Smoking Joe Frazier, some, some videos and things of that nature. But Muhammad Ali, I think he's been in Gatorade commercials my whole life. And so, you know, the whole his whole phrase that's, I guess, basically patented at this point, um, his brand's a little bit bigger to someone my age. So now what I but I, what I love about this is the example. And so I think they fought three times and the fights had names like and again, I could be getting some of this wrong. Thrill in Manila that rumble yes. in the jungle, though I sometimes I get him confused with uh, his Ali's fights with Foreman in the same era is that while Muhammad Ali, I mean, he's, he's known as the greatest, the importance of him having that rival, right? And so if you took away Joe Frazier and George Foreman, would Muhammad Ali be the same thing? And and, and look, I'll, I'll argue that probably not, that it is, mm-hmm. you know, and, and look, we could do this with, um, and to sort of jump ahead here, uh, he's got uh, this. This gentleman has the Lakers and the Celtics at number nineteen on this list. When I think of wow, the when crazy. I think of the Lakers and Celtics rivalry, and again, sort of just think about my age. What rivalry yeah. am I thinking about in terms of who the key players were? Uh, Larry Bird, Magic. Okay, Larry and Larry. Am I right? Larry Bird and Magic Johnson were, in some ways, you can argue that they were the two individuals that took the NBA from being a league that had their championship games on, you know, tape delay to being one of the the brightest stars of the American sports universe. And, and so then the question becomes is, yeah, people love Larry and they love magic. How much did those two guys need each other? Right? So what was the combined effect of having them in the league at the same time? It was huge. It was huge for the league. It was huge for, Celtics fan base for the Lakers fan base it made every accomplishment feel that much more significant for either one of them obviously with their rivalry going all the way back to college I mean what are the odds they end up on Lakers Celtics the the biggest rivals in basketball having already built a a individual rivalry um you know it made the dream team's story that much more significant everything about it was was huge so you know it's almost like the script was written, right? These guys ended yep. up on the two premier, the most iconic brands in the in the league. Um, they quickly brought those teams back to glory, and it seemed like they were playing in the championship against each other 
you know, every other year, if not every year. Right. right? And, and so the, the, it was almost like scripted. And those two gentlemen, through their interactions and their competition, extended the script. Um, other other elements on this, other pairs on this list, we've got Ohio State and Michigan at number two in terms of a rivalry, and Alabama yeah. and Auburn at number 14. Wow, I'm surprised Alabama and Auburn's that far back. Um, I mentioned them in my last blog post on fanalyticswithmikelewis.com. A little uh, shameless plug there. But yeah, I mentioned that one because I think that one's really interesting. Alabama is way more of a powerhouse historically than Auburn. But Auburn fans are kind of of this opinion that their few accomplishments are so much more than all of Alabama's combined um, because they have more of an underdog feeling and they get that Cinderella story that Alabama could never have. So it, it really is an interesting rivalry to me. There's so much hatred, and yet there is very little parity um, in terms of talent, in terms of resources for those two programs. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it. Well, let me let me say this, and so this is that one has some interesting elements in it as well. That they both are located in the same state, so they're. I mean, how yeah. how far are the two campuses? Uh, you know, <laughs> lived in Birmingham. Yeah. Uh, Auburn's about <laughs> Auburn's about two hours away. Tuscaloosa is about an hour away. So, so, um, so it's a it's a fairly. I mean, I guess my point really is it's a fairly local situation as well, and a lot of people. And you can imagine there's a good number. I'm I'm guessing there are a number of people that drive around the state of Alabama with those license plates that say a house divided. Would that be fair? Yeah, it's a lot. And to be honest, I think those marriages don't last as long. <laughs> it is hard to imagine some. I mean, it's it's kind of great, right? Because it really does get to the how much of sports fandom might be at the core of individuals identity that there's almost you get the sense that there would always be a little bit of a problem. Like the two individuals belong to different tribes. They just happen to be together. Uh, other things on this list, uh, we got Duke and North Carolina, and obviously that's a basketball rivalry. Uh, the Red Sox and the Yankees, there, you know, there's some interesting elements of maybe Boston feeling like they were always sort of a secondary city relative to New York, definitely close proximity as well. Uh, some of the other things that I pulled off the list at number five, he has Real Madrid and Barcelona. Uh, only observation here, because I don't know much about soccer, I don't think you do either, Doug, is that this is clearly <laughs> a worldwide phenomena as well. And at number 20, Chris Everett and Martina Nav- Navratilova, which, again, I think just sort of highlights that this stuff happens across all sports, across different genders. It is a, you know, really kind of, key core part of the world of sports fandom all right so the last thing i want to do at this course is and and i'll thank the folks that have listened in um uh i'll thank you guys multiple times during this last segment uh this has definitely been a bit of a passion project to put everything together in terms of what i deliver at emory university to doing a podcast version of it. It's, it's definitely a, a different experience where you go from talking through with a bunch of talking through a bunch of visuals to more of a free form conversation. 
uh, personally, I, I hope the model, I, I think the model has some real potential. You know, it, you know we're, we're, we're taping this in 2020. This is definitely a time of disruption and change. Yeah. My Something I feel that I anticipate is that education is going to change to having a bunch of, let's say, mixed formats involved in delivery. Uh, real quick summary, just to give you guys a roadmap of where we've been to kind of put everything in context. We started out this discussion by talking about the nature of fandom. And so the, the, the idea here was that fandom is, fandom is something that provides value to people. It's part of their identity. Uh, because it's something of value, communities of fans form. These fan communities share stories, narratives, legends, right? So it's, there's a lot of, you know, the word tribalism is in the news a lot in this year of 2020 with a presidential campaign uh, coming fairly soon. Sports fans are a great example of tribes in that, you know, they, they share a lot of they share a lot of the same experiences, and that creates something where, in the case of politics, it might be something kind of fairly nasty in the world of sports. Mm-hmm. It creates something fairly magical and positive for the, for the most part. Even, you know, we were talking about rivals today. Uh, on some level, I suspect that the Alabama and Auburn fans or the Ohio State and Michigan fans have some grudging respect for the other side, even though they disagree with all their opinions about um, college football. Um from there, we went into classic and advanced sports statistics. So we talked some about the the nature of how do you create statistics for players? Um, how have they been created in the past versus what is the right way to do it? So what is kind of the leading edge approach to sports analytics? Spent some time talking about on-field decision-making. Uh, decisions like um, going for two versus kicking the extra point, doing a sacrifice bunt or swinging away. Uh, taking a three-point shot or trying to pass the ball inside. Uh, so a lot of a lot of what you actually see being talked about in modern sports and modern sports journalism, going for an onside kick or, or not. Uh, we followed that up with some discussion about decision-making biases. This is important because even if you've got the best sports analytics in the world, you still have to have an executive pull the trigger to be advised by the numbers. We then finished up the class by talking about how great sports brands are built. Today, we talked about things like rivalries. Uh, you know, Magic Johnson winning championships is what builds the Lakers. But when he can win them in more dramatic fashion against Larry Bird, wow, that's really how iconic brands, how iconic teams and fan bases are created. And then we finished it up today with uh, a discussion about league organizations. So putting the mechanism, or at least for today, understanding the mechanisms that really dictate how leagues end up functioning, functioning, how competition uh, is created across big markets and small markets. So as a very last word in terms of a look ahead, so this is, we're calling this one Fanalytics 101. This will be the core course in the library. Where we're going to next and sort of look ahead for for all you guys out there is deeper dives into specific sports statistics or sports analytics topics. We've already got one out there uh, related to the NBA where we look at NBA efficiency statistics and the next one on tap will be um, uh, an investigation into 
quarterback statistics uh, in sort of a companion piece for the 2020 NFL statistic. Uh, So with that, thank you very much. That's it.